Just waters. Just waters. Yeah, mate, he says. Because Josh is like, uh, I don't know, the Kid Leroy of complexity science. Um, <laughs> Kid Leroy fella um, from Western New South Wales. He like applies his, um, his Gamilaroi indigenous knowledge, you know, to pretty much everything in the sciences and biology. And, uh, but then of course, with abductive reasoning uh, going across into, you know, economics, governance, you know, uh, social issues, all, all these kind of patterns uh, that, that ultimately are patterned on a landscape. How you going, Braz? Yeah, good, good, good. I um, don't know about that Kid Leroy reference. Maybe Kid Leroy was <laughs> uh, minus four million um, net worth rather than a plus four minus <laughs> Four million um, net worth and, and probably a couple less favorable songs um, put out there into the into the world. Just the only, mansion. just only four million. He's not so mm. he's not Bieber yet. Then you get yet. there, you get there. He's a handsome dude. Mm. He can sing good, and he sings the stuff that um, you know teenage girls wants to sing, uh, wants to hear. So I tell you, that's just going to take off. <laughs> yeah, you can add some zeros to that four million soon. Mm. It's um, there's a community of people everywhere and they do really well. So what's yeah. going on? Just uh, level with me. I, I look at the map and I see Gamilaroi is a bloody big territory in relation to the other to the other uh, tribal boundaries around there from all the other language groups. Just be honest. Did you guys do an imperialism? Ah, uh, you Uh, I'm not too sure. What has happened? Um, I know that there's uh, there's ideas floating around that that sort of frame us as the the Black Irish. I've heard that um, from a couple of people that, that are around, but uh, I definitely can't seem to come across Camilleroy people pretty much everywhere I go. I think um, yeah. there's so I've heard someone say there's something in the water. Um, there, there is a lot of things in the water. I don't know if there's much there that. That makes yeah, us well, um, enhanced beings yeah, in any way. The water dog, water dog in the water there. Mm, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Little uh, cryptid that you years ago kicking around. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the rest. Yeah, I don't know. This, uh, I also acknowledge the fact that um, eighteen eighteen, we were one of the first um, uh, communities impacted by colonization and invasion along with Wiradjuri people and um, mm. oh, they're, they're another group that I often see around and mm. I think there's a combined territory there probably um, twice the size of France um, roughly the size of mm. 
a Gamilaroi alone is roughly the size of Tasmania. So um, they are big territories. Um, but mm. uh, I think also given that we're sort of proximally connected to a lot of the uh, urban uh, and commercial hubs around both states, New South Wales and Queensland, there's a lot of people who migrate around uh, looking for opportunity and looking for influence and to raise their families um, mm. in a completely new context. So there's also that. But. Mm. Well, I just, um, I pretty much have not come across any industry that didn't have um, Kamuroi people doing well in it. So, so whatever he's doing, it's, um, it's, it's, it's going well. <laughs> and um, I don't know, well, you, you're just like one of the best um, systems thinkers uh, I've met um, in our community, you know, here in Indigenous Australia, it's, um, yeah, like uh, the way you've mastered the sort of codes, um, the codes on this side of things, but then, you know, being able to line that up with and uh, keep distinct, but also compare and contrast with, with our own codes and, um, and you know, your cultural knowledge mastery as well. It's, um, it's been really helpful since you joined up with the Indigenous Knowledge Systems Lab here. Uh, you know, we've had some really good thinks, thinking sessions on uh, especially the questions of the economies of scale. And um, but I think what we're going to get into today is some of your thoughts around um, feedback loops. Um, yeah, feedback loops, I think. Um, but yeah, yeah let, well, let's let's try and start by defining complexity. Hmm. So complexity um, science, what, what, what is that? Uh, what is that from our, our way of looking at things? Yeah, um, I think just a preface. So I'm, I'm certainly no expert in, in complexity at this point in time. Um, one of the things I really do love about complexity is that I think I heard uh, Liv Bory say that um, that with every person who gives a definition of complexity, she learns something new. Um, so I think there's that sort of uh, fluidity and flexibility around how we position ourselves within complexity uh, mm. how we how do we how we define complexity probably that it doesn't have a definition at the moment is something that uh, increases its capacity to influence mm. the world and uh, describe mm. systems and um, make sense of the things that are happening around us um, complexity yeah. overall from my understanding um, uh, from a complex systems perspective is just looking at um, the greater uh, all the moving parts of different systems and the things that are uh, not always stable, they're always fluid and dynamic and um, they're always changing. Uh, they're virtually mm. not non-predictable or unpredictable. Um, mm. But particularly from, from an Indigenous perspective and where I see them sort of marrying up, uh, and I think it's a key point of interest for a lot of our mobs, uh, including other Indigenous groups <clears throat> from around the world, uh, Turtle Island Institute, for example, um, mm. they appear to be finding some uh, some big correlations there between uh, simply how they how they think their ancestors saw the world around them, mm. um, as as deeply uh, and profoundly interconnected, interrelated, and um, and uh, interdependent and intricately interwoven. Um, so they're they're yeah, uh, there are ways that, that come of no mm. surprise to us um, and that I, I firmly believe that our ancestors uh, and even some of our current relatives back on our 
respective countries and homelands. Uh, they observed, recorded, and communicated things like behaviors uh, and attributes of natural systems. Uh, and this mm. is done primarily, as you know, through story, song, dance, ritual, ceremony um, over many, many thousands of years. Um, and I, I, would, I would go as far to, to say as well, uh, through this process, slowly optimizing uh, our abilities and capacities to belong within greater literal and figurative ecologies. Mm. Um, I've, I've seen some... Um, I've seen descriptions within my own dreaming stories. Uh, a lot of the processes and the ideas, um, such as uh, stability, chaos, emergence, self-organization, nonlinearity, uh, co-evolutionary fitness, um, biology, and and even uh, metaphors for transhumanism. Um, so all those components there that I've mentioned, they fall within just one dreaming story um, that mm. I know from, from my country. Uh, and that's our dinner one story. So, as you know, dinner one, uh, and so that sort of yeah. Depicts... We might get into that. We might get into that story. I'm really interested, particularly in the transhumanist side. So, you mm. know, so for me, just to wrap up with the definitions, it's like you've just done it perfectly. For me, the complexity, complexity sciences, complexity science is like a, a basket of um, methodologies. And there's constantly having more added, improved, all that sort of thing. It's a basket of methodologies um, that facilitate inquiry into emergence. Mm. You know, not just what's revealed in a system, but what's emergent within a system. But also mm. as part of that inquiry, if you're doing interventions, that you are able to facilitate those interventions as, you know, in complex ways that allow for emergence so that the system you're sort of at worst you're co-designing with the system but you know usually the idea would be that the system is nature's doing the heavy lifting and that um you know so there's that um but then there's there's kind of like a dark side of it as well and that's where people are looking to you know manipulate things or uh improve their predictive uh technologies in order to gain a competitive advantage or at the very worst there's like a bunch of carpetbaggers and grifters who are like, you know, putting together little models, little heuristics, little hypotheses that they sort of put up there and put it into a nice diagram and then, you know, go around peddling it to organizations and to, um, you know, policymakers and all kinds of things in the most simplistic ways. Um, so you find um, like a lot of the systems thinking stuff is uh, prey to that. You know the systems thinking stuff is good, but there's there's a lot of uh, a lot of grifters in there, a lot of grifters all around, and mm -hmm. think it's that grift that sort of has this kind of almost magnetic you know basin of attraction, like is some kind of strange attractor associated with that grift that kind of is this big black hole that brings in <laughs> it brings in a lot of weirdness and shifts the whole complexity space into you know adjacent to um other areas that are a bit bloody dodgy. Um, mm -hmm and that are kind of you know that we don't really want to uh be associated with but um you know but but this is where we are because it's for me it's the discipline that's closest to um our way of doing things mm. so anyway definitions unless you wanted to add anything to that Lim, we might move that yarn towards some story because there's uh no yarn without story bro mm, that's it um, yeah, so I'll just just to follow on, there's like emu, emu in our story, uh, sort of depicted as a powerful sort of carer, nurturer figure, um, 
which I know is different to your story and I saw within Sandtalk there, um, but I also know that up, in, up within sort of central NT um, mobs, you get a, a completely different story there too. Emu has a big law and ceremony and story, um, which sort of come, travels around different parts of Australia through Songline. Um, but you, you'll get a different story across all of the 200 to 400 different language groups that exist across Australia. Yeah. Um, so, and, and, and I, I know a lot of Dinawan people from the Gamilaroi diaspora because they're everywhere. And it's really funny, like um, like heaps of Dinawan totem people. And not one of them has gone wild at me yet about, um, <laughs> about my like Brogo boy interpretation of, <laughs> of emu narcissism. You know, um, and I, I think that yeah, because uh, I know there's a similar story too with the Brogan emu in your, in your way. But then there's there's other stuff that's about nurturance, uh, particularly on the male side of things. Mm, yeah, so the emu or any animal, um, in particular that occupies a particular part of the landscape, it will mean something completely different depending on how it features in each, um, bioregional or place-based narrative, um, how it relates to. Um, different uh, trees or different ecologies seasonally mm. um, how uh, how and where and and when it feeds its young um, and the leadership that it provides and the caring and nurturance mm. um, I think it's not that big of a problem for us to to sit with those different stories knowing that they come from different bioregional um, contexts yeah. because we do understand that bioregional contextualization is, is an important part of how we share story and how we find and locate yeah. greater meaning through being able well, to see them on the same file. If you're yarning and, and you're not happy with conflicting story to be alongside, then you're not really yarning. Mm. You need to go back and check your protocols and check your ego, eh? Because mm. proper um, yarn got to bring all those ones alongside. Yeah, that's it. Um, I should point out, though, that there is a trickster in, in that story and uh, hey. and... But in our case, it's the kookaburra. Uh, so, so the same energy, uh, but sort of inverted. Um, uh, I can say that the way that the story plays out, particularly within the interactions between the emu and the kookaburra, uh, virtually describes uh, the physical and theoretical functions of what we call in science now as stability and chaos. Um, mm. I think, I think in, I think it's sort of referred to as well as Hamiltonian mechanics, which sits within that mm -hmm. space of dynamical systems theory um so my basically if my understanding is correct around how these convergences are and correlations are kind of happening within those different spaces um hamiltonian mechanics kind of suggests that uh that the total energy of a system is equivalent to the sum of both its kinetic and potential energies mm. uh, and then which is influenced by how kinetic energy is impacted by the mass and momentum of a particular item in space to produce concurrent energetic potentials. So when we look at these principles associated uh, within the dreaming story, um, we can sort of see like parallels there. Um, and so that story comes from a particular place on our country, uh, the uh, Sacred Lagoon, in fact, and that's in sort of Northwest New South Wales central eastern region of australia um and it features a crocodile as well so there's there's a triangulation of those characteristics that are featured within the story and so mm. as you know and and as i think uh some a lot of murray's um will will have an understanding of is that 
there aren't any crocodiles in that area today. In fact, they're thousands of mm. kilometers away. Um, and they haven't been there for more than 8,000 to 13,000 years, potentially as far back yeah. as 40,000 40, years in the late Pleistocene. Yeah. Um, so these... Yeah, they were, they were gone in an ice age, eh? Mm, yeah, that's it. Finished up there yeah. with the stories are still there, like 10,000 yeah, years old, yeah. Yeah, so I was going to say the, that kind of indicates the immense time scale of this, even at its, mm. uh, at its smallest, um, for 8,000 8, years, we, we could say, um, mm. So, uh, the, consequently, the understanding of those greater phenomenologies uh, and workings of the universe. Um, so, our old people had that, and this is the same for complexity when I talk about complexity. Um, but you could take most scientific disciplines uh, and, and say that there are some understandings which our dreaming stories will capture or have captured and continue to capture because uh, these, these stories are still alive. Um, and well in, in communities today. Uh, and this mm. is this continuation um, uh, persists uh, despite um, colonial disruption and obviously uh, the, the immensity and the propensity of these stories um, extends a lot further back through the corridors of time than say uh, Hamilton and, and Lorenz um, and also Newton and Schrodinger and, and Heisenberg and Einstein. And this is mm. not necessarily mm. to say that their, their contributions are not extraordinary um, or important or, or necessary even. Um, or as you said, all stories can be brought in and shared around that campfire. Um, mm. And, you know, my assertion would be that just perhaps um, Indigenous knowledge, including our stories and our histories, contain valuable insights into the state and the characteristics of dynamic complex uh, and multi multifunctional um of a, a world and, and universes in, in ways. Well, we have, we have um, protocols for restricted knowledge. Yeah, that's it. You know, and that's, yeah. that's stuff that I think the old fellows can access, you know, when, they're, when they've reached a certain level of knowledge, you know. Um, and there's reasons for that because some knowledge is just, you know, Manhattan Project sort of stuff that um, should not be just out in the general world <laughs> you know half einstein's stuff probably should have been in a bit of a conclave somewhere and, and sort of kept uh just with people who you know could be a bit more judicious in how and when to use it mm. CRISPR shouldn't be out there that should be restricted knowledge this <laughs> some things uh all knowledge doesn't want to be free mm. yeah yeah, so like you said, it's, it's about coming back to those uh, community and cultural values and protocols to decide, okay, so we've got this knowledge here, we've got this understanding, we've got um, this plan to roll this out mm. into the public domain and into the, the global sphere of relations. Mm. Uh, how is this going to be impacted? Uh, well, as, as you know, of... it's, it, it makes it hard. It's not a level playing field because, you know, we can really only use a kindergarten level of knowledge mm. you know um like there's this stuff you and me talk about all the time that i mean that we just can't share with other people and then there's there's stuff that you know even if you could share it like people aren't going to get it so you got to break it down you know mm. um so there there's kind of that, that thing the translation all the time and um of restriction mm. that sort of does make things make things difficult when you're you're out there playing against einstein but you know, um, but you can only go with, you know, the level of, of Einstein at, at kindergarten, 
Mm. And, and uh, which I think he failed like year three or something, didn't he? Einstein. So that's, that's there. We, we can, we can, we can kick his butt there in year three at least. Yeah. I don't know. My, <laughs> so my, my great grandfather, he was born in Bumai, which is in uh, Northwest New South Wales at 20 Ks North of Moree. Um, and so he wasn't allowed to, he wasn't supposed to go past grade five. Uh, mm. uh, and so um, that was generally the term uh, for uh, First Nations, Indigenous, Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander people in Australia was yep. that they were they were reduced to these um, these low expectations around their levels of education, what they could achieve, and how much they could yeah. participate. Uh, and there was that general expectation that they would be moved into um, menial work, domestic duties, and yep. those sorts of things. That's so it. I don't, I've, I've got know. no I got no grandparents, but he. You know, in, in any side, in any way, no, no grandparents who made it past fourth form. It's like, mm. particularly females. But, you know, um, fourth form, the males went out for labor and the females went for domestic labor or went to an uh, institution for training for domestic labor. Mm. Um, usually, you know, ended up in the house of some old dude. Mm. Yeah, no, it's not good. Um, I think probably a, yeah, a good way of framing weird. it. Even, even at our, just, just my grandparents, so that, that, that close historically, it's, yeah, that's, um, like I'm, the, I'm the first one to get through. Mm, I think one of the ways that I would look at it is to sort of invert it or flip it and just say, okay, so we had, if these old men and these old women had these understandings of complex scientific uh, concepts and philosophies, then Einstein was an anomaly, right? Um, these these other names that I mentioned before, these are anomalies, um, and they're sort of once in a once in what hundred thousand uh, hundred years or a couple thousand years potentially. Uh, whereas most of our old people would have had these mm. um, these highly uh, in depth, complex understandings of the world and the universe, and and used uh, dreaming stories to. Um, to describe some of these things uh, and most human cultures did this all around the world um, if you take it literally of course it's not going to mean the same thing so obviously thor didn't create lightning but the story of thor can uh can provide valuable information around how uh electrons say um how they bond or how they function um or the behavior of lightning yeah. or at what time of year you might see it and what would be the the Cyclic. Well, I've talked. I've talked to. I've talked to um, Vikings about that. Mm, yeah, exactly. We did the um, Maxwell's Demon Thought Experiment, and they were um, they were lining that up with the fire and ice business of of creation there, and the um, you know the energy and the type of pattern that is Thor, and then on the other and then on the other side of that is is pretty deadly. Mm. Yeah. So obviously, if you take it literally, it's going to mean something very different. But if you look at if you apply that metaphorical mm. lens. Um, and you look at it at a, at a, as phenomenological, or you look at it as being able to mm. provide an invaluable blueprint for the characteristics of that thing. Um, then there's there's some pretty profound learnings I think to be had there. Mm. We look at mm. um, say David Yanayapon, uh, who was a uh, who was an Aboriginal man, a Ngunnawal man from um, down in South Australia. He um, he was. Uh, he went through uh, the schooling system through those low expectations. And despite all of that, he uh, went back and read new, new uh, books on Newton and 
Newtonian physics and um, gained a pretty decent understanding of it to mm. then be able to come up with a mechanism that the, almost the entire economic base of Australia is built off. Um, so, but there's very little recognition for that. Um, David, you know, mm. as you, you and I know from our cultural context was not an anomaly. Um, mm. So, so sheep shears we... you're talking about. So Australia's yeah, economy born on the sheep's back. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. That, so, that mechanism. Um... But look, he was also he was also he spent a lot of decades working on perpetual motion machines. Mm. Yeah, I didn't yeah, see that. To because uh, I... he, he he was he was chasing that holy grail there. The zero point mm. business bros. Yeah. But you know, you don't want to talk about that. <laughs> you don't want to talk about the perpetual motion. It's bad yeah. science. Oh, I don't know if it's bad. I just think um it's very inconclusive in that space and and people tend people yeah. certain people tend to get a bit um a bit offended and a bit butthurt by by um the imposition of indigenous peoples and knowledge so. into into a space that's been reserved for them for a long time i won't say who they are oh too um, good right mm. better leave it alone then <laughs> mm-hmm. but uh, I, I wouldn't i wouldn't shy away from the idea of, of exploring that more within an indigenous context um i think that just because something mm. um is said to have not existed or doesn't exist or perhaps there's complications mm. around it um, that doesn't mean that that it's not there we know that story very well in our in our um, indigenous communities, where, mm. oh, and even non-indigenous communities, there was a time when scientists didn't believe that bacteria existed, um, and that uh, and that the effects of bacteria could have been attributed to something that was different. Um, so science doesn't know everything, and science doesn't claim to know everything. Uh, just the same as we don't claim to know everything, um, but we are saying that yeah. relationships are important in all of that. So perhaps if if Newton mm. had a chance to work with David Dinaipon, they might have discovered a perpetual motion machine. Who knows? Yeah, well, I, I have a theory. I have a theory that that old man Dinaipon he he gave it away. Like he looked too deep in there and, and decided he didn't like what he saw. Mm. Maybe he found something and he just thought, oh, no, this should not be a thing. Mm. You know, yeah, just because you can do it, just because you can do it doesn't mean you should. And, um, you know, and I think he filed that under the restricted knowledge side of things. Um, or he just gave up on the process because he'd sort of thought it through and thought, hang on. Um, yeah, this is something that should not be. You're not supposed to break those laws. Mm. Laws of physics, laws of the land, anything else? You know, yeah, perhaps he didn't have laws. an perhaps he didn't have an, an IKSL to run the idea by, <laughs> <laughs> or to unpack it a little bit further. So, yeah, I don't know. I've, there's a lot of things to speculate about, and there's a lot of things that we can sort of play with in the meantime. But there's there's also obviously protocols and and things of that mm. nature that we need to be mindful of as we as we go mm. through these processes and looking at knowledge production um, application uh, in communities um, what kind of impact those are going to have and what kind of things they might trigger um, yeah look at things like social media now and, and even the internet to some degree and, and yeah maybe maybe if there were protocols that around that it would look very different that wamba stuff mm, yeah it certainly can yeah. be but it also is a tool for good as well. Like we, we'd be, we'd be pretty, um, 
I don't know, might be a bit hypocritical of us to sit on a podcast and use Zoom and, and say how bad the internet and how bad social media and all these things are. There can be good that come from it uh, as well, but we, we have to balance those out appropriately. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. I don't think that's hypocrisy. You know, if you're starving and you're standing on a bread line, you're complaining about the queue. And then someone says, oh, but you're standing in a queue, what a hypocrite. And it's like, no, nah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. wrong way. Yeah, anyway, like, um, I'm, I'm keen to see you wind this narrative path through with, with the dinner one. Dinner one now, um, particularly like how you end up, how you end up at transhumanism with it. So mm. that's, that, that sounds interesting. Yeah, I think but, you it's... Know, build to that, save, save that for the exciting sort of end of the story so we can hang on every word in between. Mm. Yeah, I don't know a great deal about transhumanism. I just, I see that there's some parallels there. Uh, and mm. as, as I continue to work through, um, just so like, I guess, uh, coming from a, a fairly strong cultural background, um, being fairly mm. grounded in my language and my dreaming stories and my um, ceremony. Uh, that's my basis. And so uh, coming through the science now and uh, looking at trying to catch up on the last uh, almost 400 years um, of scientific inquiry and, and how things sort of came to be from Descartes to um, to bore and, and um, these innovators within that scientific domain. Uh, and then there's obviously a lot of influence of philosophy on the way that we look at and do science and how we, um, how we form these disciplines, these silo disciplines that don't really speak to one another. Uh, trying to understand that and then going back to my um, cultural uh, epistemologies as a Gamilaroi man to say, well, okay, so here's this concept. How might this align with something that already exists in my language or in my culture or in my dance or in my story? Um, and then working back into the mainstream from there to say, okay, so what's, what are the regulatory mechanisms to, um, to keep going with this idea? Um, often go back to my elders and, and just have those conversations with them and say, well, what, is this the same thing or is this something that's different? Mm. Um, and so that's everything that I've basically said. Well, about that's that. it. I mean, we, we like to pattern, pattern those things on the negative feedback loops that are mm. already there in the patternings of, um, of the natural systems, you know what I mean? Um, mm. You know, it's there. You know, you've got good model for good law there. Mm. And, um, I don't know, you need to do that, otherwise you're often going with your gut and you never know when that ego is going to get in the way. There's some things you just know is wrong. I had lunch before with Megs and she was, I'm sitting there eating this, eating, eating some ribs, you know, and um, she started telling me about a colleague of hers who's grown an ear on his arm. Oh. Grown a freaking ear on his forearm. And... You know, they're, and they're presenting some stuff on that layer and you know, cybernetic organs and stuff like this. And he's sort of a living experiment. And, and I nearly vomit. I'm like, whoa, whoa. <laughs> nearly vomit. <laughs> so don't tell me about that when I'm eating. 
County or something. Mm. I mean, some things he just knows are wrong. Yeah. Anyway. Mm. So, you know. Yeah, that's pretty freaky. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I think um, breaking away from some of those scientific uh, ideas uh, for uh, even if it's momentary to regather yourself yeah. in accordance with your your cultural uh, epistemologies and, and ontologies, um, which are different for everybody. Again, going back to those differences mm. in the stories and the differences in place and, and bioregional context. Um, yeah, and I think uh, scientific modernism in, as a general uh, concept that exists within the scientific domain uh, is something for us to that we need to sort of reckon with um, mm. and t- taking away that reductionistic um, lens on the world. Uh, obviously, Cartesian uh, or Descartes' um, ideas mm. of the Cartesian split rests on the that split. idea of the... Mm, yeah, rests on that idea that things can be reduced down to its smallest components and can be understood in greater depth. And um, Although there's, there's more... Uh, recent approaches such as complexity and science and systems theory which suggests mm. that perhaps there's more to the world than just the parts of the sum um mm. but the sum in its totality that, that, that doesn't that doesn't doesn't have to be in dichotomy i, I think they work together as a pretty no. good diet actually your complexity mm. and uh reductionism in reductionism yeah. has its has its place hmm. yeah i think so too um and we mm. see that with like we see reflections of that within our community context in that um, me uh, as as a person and as a Gamilaroi man, um, I might just be a node um, who is part of a greater social system that exists within Gamilaroi uh, cultural governance contexts. Um, so well, particularly I'm, in ceremony, so you'll be there, you might be, ceremony you might be dancing up your dinner one story there and choop choop, it's all your... Um, and you'll just be there. You're not, mm. you're, not, uh, you're not thinking about the rest of the system or anything else. You're just um, you're just following that, and you're completely in that focus there. Mm. Um, you know, for that story alone, and and you're just embodying that in that moment. No, I guess that's reductionism. Yeah, it could be. Um, so, mm, it's probably the relationship between the thing that you've reduced uh, or the component of the um, the greater system uh, in accordance with what the system requires or demands of the node. Um, so the relational mm. element between reducted uh, or reduced um, and the, the thing that it's been reduced from, uh, they're, they're probably the more important components. Uh, and that's where I see those correlations with, with something like ceremony um, is that I, I'm informed by, even though I'm a reduced version of, uh, a greater Gamilaroi knowledge system and um, kinship uh, and community framework. Um, I sort of formulate my behaviors and decision-making in accordance with what that bigger system requires of me. Uh, mm-hmm. And the system itself is dependent on how I interact uh, with the other sort of agents or nodes or people um, or groups within that system. Um, and that's that that uh, unfolding of that cultural governance system mm-hmm. um, from our perspective. So when I, when I talk about the dinner one um, and the, how the dinner one features within that story, 
uh, it might be a reduced component of it. So that's where I say like uh, perhaps that's a representation of, uh, of stability within that system and the trickster energy coming in to destabilize mm. that um, kinetic that energy. Yeah, 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 destabilize that kinetic energy. And then there's a potential energy that can arise from that uh, interaction, um, which is in turn, the kookaburra might be a representation of something like uh, chaos and therefore uh, those two existing in relation to each other formulate mm. part of a greater dynamic um, system uh, within itself. And then um, uh, what tends to happen in that story is that the dinner one gets snapped up by the crocodile who I mentioned before, the garia. Um, mm. And then there's a there's another process in there uh, where the the dinner one's uh, spirit is freed from the belly of the garia, uh, and then it goes up into the sky to live up um, in the um, in the uh, gunagala, uh, which we, we call uh, is our Milky Way, um, mm. and so the process of um, uh, there's processes so. Uh, there's a process of um, some kind of death or the ending of a energetic state and a transition into a new energetic state. Um, so perhaps it doesn't capture transhumanism exactly, but it captures the process that one might go through um, to align with transhumanist values. Um, mm. So, I'd, so that. That's, that could be one of those things where we don't talk too much about that because that can mean different things to different people depending on their level of understanding and their level of grasp around the protocols for, um, say, uh, death rites or funerary rites um, and singing uh, spirits back to country and then what that means once they enter back into that, uh, that place um, within the greater cosmological um, sphere of existence so they're mm -hmm. they're sort of that's that's a bit of a vague way of putting it without going too deeply into the story itself and and without yeah. going too deeply into the the actualized components um as um they're, they're more yarns for that ceremonial context or sitting around the campfire um and looking at those greater uh, knowledge systems mm -hmm. Um, outside of their mm -hmm. reduced components. So it, the same way that the dinner one um, is a reduced component of that story, that story is a reduced component of a bigger uh, atlas of knowledge. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it makes me think about that, that bit, you know, um, you know, when you think about uh, the um, repercussions, you know, and applications, and, for you know the deepest desires of these transhumanists you know you think about that um you know, you have that belly belly of the crocodile hmm. and you know the other stories where you know people are taken and, and they, they they finish up there you think about with uh Boyami's wives there you know there's what happens in between you know from that belly to um to reviving them you know with the ant's nest the business with the ant's nest, you know, that, that sort of must be simplified down in, in, in lower stages of knowledge to, you know, um, that they were just uh, sort of sleeping, you know, that they were, uh, you know, unconscious and then the ant stings sort of woke them up kind of thing. But there's, there's more there, you know, 
there's more there in that story in the, in the same way. Um, but, you know, once again, you, you, know, you start moving towards restricted knowledge there and it's restricted for a reason. Yeah, that's just it. Don't anybody just messing around with those systems and, you know, playing with the laws of physics and, um, you know, doing magics. I guess that's the difference between, uh, you know, magic and spirit is spirit kind of when you break the rules. <laughs> I mean, magic's when you break the rules and spirit is, is when you're playing, uh, playing how you should. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a, I don't know, maybe from other cultural contexts, there's a fine line, but for me, that they're pretty clearly distinguishable. Um, I know how to yeah. sort of navigate that. And that's, I don't make that decision on my own. I go back to my old people and, and have those conversations. And I think it mm. comes with the, the bigger understanding that uh, from my perspective, but also something that, that I guess there should be an invitation to consider um, across all, all global communities uh, is, is that just because you understand the reduced component of it doesn't mean that you understand the full um, extreme uh, and holistic circumstances of that thing. Um, so that's it. And that's, that's essentially what complexity is. It's, it's saying mm. basically that understanding a neuron doesn't mean that you understand the chemistry or the function of the brain. Uh, along with say dream states and imagination and, and other mm. alternative forms mm. of wave wave states and functions um, it can't mean that you that you understand the self-organizing properties of a neural system and how it serves yeah. to to memorize complex pieces of information or create artifacts or fall in and out of love for example there's a bigger story and much greater principles to these sorts of things in effect. Um, mm. I don't know, understanding how, to, how a piston in a car works doesn't mean that you understand combustion or energy laws, but understanding combustion yeah. doesn't mean, so there's, this is where scale sort of comes in is that um, understanding combustion doesn't mean that you know how to drive the car. And just cause you know how to drive a car doesn't mean that you can just drive onto anyone's property. Um, mm. So there's, there's those scales of responsibility that we all yeah. need to adhere to in these processes. And I think complexity from Western science perspective aligns really well with the way that well, the, we scale that knowledge and the handful of people handful of people on the planet who understand gravity and can explain it that they're probably the least grounded people there are <laughs> you know yeah, new, so, new um, be one of them yeah so we come we come to scale come to scale now you oh yeah i can see how we go with scale yeah we might, we might just ease into it <laughs> just take your time um yeah look it's all it's all really tricky i, I think that um uh kookaburra there it's it's, it's really important that the trickster like it's just as important to break the pattern as it is to follow the pattern because that stable pattern just forever it's it just becomes redundant you know and there's entropy you know this is what's interesting because the first law of dynamics is uh, thermodynamics is only like 99% true. You know, like they've found more recently that world systems do lose energy over time. That, you know, energy kind of is destroyed eventually. <laughs> you know, a bit of it. You know, and so that's where, 
Yeah, so so that would be like a law of physics most of the time. But every now and then your system needs a top up. And so maybe that's when you need those ritual magics. So you know, particularly around you know increased ceremonies uh, coming out of the story places. Uh, what our colleague JD John Davis refers to as Mimbori, uh, from that you know walk walk cobble cobble way there bunny mountains. Um, yeah, he calls them Mimbori. Those uh, like those sites of we always say flowers. Those mm. flows and that ceremony you got there kind of um you know that allows that energy to come through from from the other side and kind of i don't know i think of it as a top up it's probably a bit blasphemous to call it like that but you know, kind of it's kind of topping up topping up the inevitable entropy that happens in any system mm. um you know even with the first law of thermodynamics in place and even if you have all those uh regenerative loops going on Maybe that's how we'll work our way towards scale. We talk about them um, positive feedback loops and negative feedback loops. Mm. What's your thinking around them? Uh, yeah, I think you can't have scale without feedback. Um, otherwise, you're destined to um, you're destined to collapse. Uh, any any right. person or any any civilization who thinks that they can neglect uh basic and fundamental feedback loops can basically the negative feedback loops the regulatory ones yeah so yeah um there are a number of different feedback loops maybe it's worth sort of giving you some context to feedback loops so um feedback essentially or, or any kind of feedback mechanism can be described um through input and output uh that's simplifying it down to its very basic um, components or reducing it uh, so feed feedback so something like, it's feeding something like information or data or perhaps story in our context um, into a particular system and that will produce some kind of output um, so mm. we are also so I'm, I'm very careful not to simplify uh, feedback and avoid it becoming like a replication of say uh, a goes into the system and b comes out because that type of thinking, mm. it, it neglects the constellation yeah, of possibilities in between. Yeah, um, yeah. So, so for example, once there's some kind of input, there's a range of possibilities, including processing, uh, interpretation, perception, uh, and other mechanisms that can be triggered within that cycle. Um, so as you know, there's a, there's a lot of different types of feedback loops that operate uh, in some cases in perpetuity, uh, but many uh, just within general and daily energetic uh, organismic life cycles. And this will vary from system to system really. Um, so scale has to be taken into account where in systems that are of other systems uh, can be scales of feedback that operate at lower levels, um, but also in accordance with bigger feedback loops and mechanisms that operate at more micro levels. Uh, so the main feedback loops that exist within that space of complexity and complex systems um, that I, from my perspective, um, is and around like monitoring and evaluation and analysis and affordance um, are your regular positive and negative feedback loops. So these don't necessarily have too much to do with value judgments, which is a mistake that I made when I first came into learning about complexity. It's not about positive equals good and negative equals bad. It's more um, they're defined in accordance with what they produce in terms of their output. Um, 
So they really have more to do with like uh, positive uh, means sort of growth and application uh, of the system and negative kind of is more aligned with uh, regulation and balance and homeostasis. Uh, so we also have uh, like open and closed loops, which can operate within or concurrent to other loops. So the key idea within the operational components of loops uh, is of course that they're always context dependent and they, what they mean for us is that they can provide strategies and uh, prompts and insights into the responsiveness of the system uh, and the responsiveness of the custodians of that system or the associates of the system. Um, so once you start looking at scale, uh, you, you have to take into account those feedback mechanisms and what they're telling you as a, as a person who's monitoring, evaluating, uh, caring for, or um, analyzing that system. So in, in relation to say the human body, we have uh, a number of different feedback mechanisms that change over time from when we're a baby to when we're an adult to when we're an elderly person. Um, and we have to be able to make sure that we really have a grasp on those feedback loops in order to survive, um, essentially. Um, so that's, that's sort of a broad definition of feedback loops. There's probably a number of things that are left out. There's probably a number of things that, um, that are parallel to the ways that um, other people would describe them, but that's, that's essentially my mm. understanding. So scale- What did you say my story about the fish and rice? Mm, yeah, if you want. <laughs> that was so. That was when I'm having breakfast, and one bit of rice gets up in that spot, like it's not your nose and it's not your throat. It's just that place in between. Yeah, that's that it. Liminal, liminal place. I've no idea what it's called. But anyway, you get rice, and now it's it's awful. You know, so you start going, <laughs> making that horrible noise, and then um, anyway, you start sneezing. You know, so it's a, but then that becomes a positive feedback loop because I'm still eating the rice and then, so I'm sneezing and it's making me breathe weird. So more rice gets back there. And, and so that's the positive feedback loop. The negative feedback loop is my ear, my eyes tearing up and just the, the horrible feeling in my chest when I start to cough and everything else that's supposed to stop me from eating. Slow me down, give me to take care of myself to sort of disrupt that positive feedback loop. Because if I just keep eating while I'm sneezing, I'm going to end up with like half a cup of rice up there and, um, and that's just going to be no good. It'll all end up on my lungs and I'll get pneumonia. So, yeah. Yeah, that's and so the rice, the rice in that case is the input. Um, so then you having a coughing fit is the output. <laughs> but as yeah. you mentioned, there's a whole, there's a whole process there. Uh, and the liminal space and uh, respiratory mechanisms and um, yep. and how you, how your body's fighting to restore itself to get back yep. to that equilibrium of being able to breathe uh, as you normally would. That's it. But I'm just I'm not just in that system. I'm also in a system where I'm expected to be learning running by nine. So you know. <laughs> so yeah. um, I could override that negative feedback loop. I do my little intervention there, override it, and uh, keep going, and yeah. So I end up uh, scaling my day into some horrendous misery. I just get my job done. So <laughs> you got to watch out for that. And talk, yeah. talking to me. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah. And um, unfortunately, our colleague, our colleague Charles Marshall in the think tank, mm. in the Indigenous Knowledge System Lab, and she talks about. Um, you remember that time when she was she proposed the idea of contaminated loops? Mm. 
almost like almost like um like a feedback loop a natural feedback loop can be contaminated by bad story mm. you know in that way and i guess the learning 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 narrative and the bootstraps you know um protestant work ethic bad story is is, is one that can contaminate that loop i, I guess <laughs> but she, she has some really good examples from marine biology of um of wrong story contaminating uh, feedback loops regulatory feedback loops particularly um which was pretty cool because at first when she said it i kind of thought ah that's just like you're just projecting like uh you know cultural and political ideas onto you know systems that don't have that but no these are one thing because that's all it's all embedded it's all one you know so yeah that was pretty cool i did enjoy her, her yards around that one yeah. yeah no i really love her perspective she's got some some good stuff um some good ideas yeah but you mentioned co-evolution before and and so of course we've got this uh you know epigenetics these sorts of things and we know from the maximum power principle that you know things can't scale things can't um evolve and scale and grow um you can't have growth beyond uh beyond the limits of the systems around you that you're interdependent with you can't scale beyond that you can't um you can't have multipolar traps in nature you can't you know there, there is no tragedy of the commons there um except for things like cancer and you know how that finishes up you know cancer cells are happy to scale beyond the limits of the system around it and that, that always ends up the same thing and of course you've got that classic example of you know you can't have a um, a lion that's somehow 10 times stronger and faster than the other lions and that much faster than the gazelles uh, because then you know that one ends up killing all the other male lions and and then you end up with all his offspring there and, and then pretty soon in a very short time the entire serengeti is destroyed and there's just a pile of lion carcasses and that's it I'm on a lot of bones. <laughs> just wasteland, you know. So you can't have things that scale that quickly, that fast, and um, that uh, unilaterally. You can't have unilateral scale and unilateral growth. Ironically, it's weird. It's the opposite of the message we've grown up with at school, but, but um, you know, in nature there are no winners and losers. You can't have winners and losers in nature, otherwise everything dies. Zero sum game. Yeah, that's it. So is that um, yeah, is that your understanding with um, you know, co-evolutionary fitness surfaces and all that kind of thing? Yeah, I think so. Um, so the regular complexity perspective. Yeah, so the the regulatory mechanism in all of that that I see is the is the Earth uh, essentially. So uh, Earth over the last um, I don't know thirteen thirteen point eight billion years or something like that. Um, and then life on Earth uh, has gone through a similar process for uh, five billion years potentially, and so um, so there's a regulatory mechanism there that has been working in effect for that long. And so humans have come along in the last I don't know two million years or something. My my, my figures might be off, um, but if you try and uh, implement or impose a, a zero sum game into uh, a system that doesn't really operate that way. Uh, it's life enhancing and life inducing uh, for the most part. 
um, and those co-evolutions happen in accordance with uh, how Earth continues to develop its its own systems and its own equilibria within those systems uh, and its own levels of homeostasis, then similar to cancer as it exists in the body and lives out of relation with the rest of the system, um, it will kill off the system and, and essentially uh, it will die. Um, so the, those sort of um, regulatory mechanisms as they exist on Earth, um, they kind of operate in the same way, although humans aren't going to kill Earth. Earth is going to be here for a lot longer than, than humans will withstand. And the, 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 we're by no means, um, we're, we're living on borrowed time um, as we currently stand. But in, in reference to our perceptions of those scales of time and those timelines, um, that it'll feel like a long time. So many, many generations have come before us and many will come after us and, and the Earth will be here um, for for any other species that comes along um, after we sort of disappear. But going back to those laws of thermodynamics, um, that's essentially uh, a contributing factor within all of that, along with those feedback mechanisms. So the Earth operates not on a positive feedback loop. Um, there may be some elements, but uh, given that homeostasis is is the key basis of biological functions on Earth and those co-evolutions and how they evolve naturally in accordance with what everything else around it needs or requires um, in order for that light, those life-inducing properties to continue. Um, if we try and operate outside of the feedback loop of Mother Earth saying, you're exceeding your limits, um, it's, it's no different to that line uh, getting too too big for its belly, and uh, and then there's obvious consequences that ripple throughout that the rest of that ecosystem, where you'll have uh, atrophic uh, atrophic cascades, um, species extinctions localized. Um, some uh, other animals naturally will slot into custodial roles or roles of that other species might play, but there's a lot to be lost um, through operating in that way. And I wouldn't like to see, see us keep continuing on that trajectory. I'd prefer to see um, some affordances there given for people who, who understand and know and have lived in good relation with those systems for quite some time, um, longer than any other human society on earth. Uh, if we're talking <clears throat> about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Australia, um, but yeah, essentially, it doesn't mean anything good if you're operating outside of those relational obligations mm. to the bigger part of the system that you're a part of. And mm. I, everything that I've mentioned um, so far, me as part of a Gamilaroi knowledge system, um, that system in accordance with other systems and stories, um, in accordance with other stories, um, it all has to mm. operate relationally. Otherwise, um, we know what happens and, and it will That's happen. It. That's so that would be when you look at the so you know the um the desired um you know affordances and adaptations that are being sought by the transhumanist you know community uh the the imaginings they're having around that and things they're striving for technologically um you know these are things in our way that that must occur over deep time it's like you do adapt and you change you know, you change the story, add to the story, or find more story. But um, 
but it takes time. The adaptation is culturally because the culture has to evolve along with the shifting landscape, along with the um, the affordances of any new innovation. You know, um, you know, like when this term I that follow log, you know, it wasn't the end of that innovation. You know, because if I answer the fire, was following that there and protecting the ants, he blew them out first when he had to burn the hollow log, which you normally wouldn't do. And then, um, yeah, and it was from that sound that came, you know, finished up uh, making that innovation. But the actual, you know, perfecting of that, that happens over so many generations. And with the uptake from the community and that, that has to be a whole community thing. It has to be approved. It has to be, you know, because nothing in creation is new. You know, there's no past, present, or future. You don't really innovate anything. All you do is retrieve things that are supposed to be retrieved in the right place and time. You know, that um, all the old fellows have to go into dream and find the songs for that, the song cycles, the story. They have to find all the, you know, the perfections of that. So there's mastery, you know, before it's taken up. You know, they have to find all the right protocols for that to protect, you know, um, so certain, you know, genders and ages of people and knowledge stages people are at with that instrument, uh, time of day, seasons, all these different things. There has to be protocols and restrictions around when that can be used and by whom, you know, um, in order for that to truly become innovation. So in the end, innovation can never be singular. It can never be one person because that's when it becomes destructive. It has to be multiple generations and it needs to be the entire community, uh, you know, contributing to that. Otherwise, there's trouble. And then that community in relation with other communities and trading that innovation around and, you know, uh, getting that uh, input from the other story and contradictory story and, and everything else. Um, if you saw this, there's been one little organism that's had more impact on the planet than anything else in, in, in the history of the earth, billions of years. One thing, you know, and that was the, that was the singular genius that, that one individual who invented leaded fuel, you know, and he was, he was depressed most of the time. That father said really struggled to keep, um, you know, and people kept stopping him, he kept running into these negative feedback loops and <laughs> kept getting frustrated in his dream. He had the dream to create this leaded fuel, you know, it would be the best fuel ever. And, you know, he was a genius and a tortured genius and he, like, nearly killed himself like eight times, a horrible life. But finally he did it, finally he did this invention. And he had more impact on the, on the earth than any other organism in the history of the planet. You know, um... You know, singular genius, uh, unilateral innovation is, um, I, I was going to say seldom, but not never. It's never a good idea. You know, this is something that, that has to, you know, pass through a few generations of peer review before you, <laughs> before you launched, you know, yeah. Mm, and I'd be interested to, I, I don't know anything about that story, but I'd be interested to know what, what his motivations were and, but it sounds like it was probably economic and, and most motivations within this system mm. because it does demand some kind of economic input. Mm, yeah, exactly. Um, it's pure competition, yeah. yeah. He wanted to defeat his enemies. 
the people who kept putting him down. <laughs> wow. Uh, you know. So I guess another part of feedback processes um, from a Western science perspective is uh, what they call uh, self-referentialism. Um, so this is the idea that everything you do through feedback and regulatory mechanisms is to help you survive. It's, it's very individual. Um, so it's mm. to feed yourself, to clothe yourself, find shelter, and fulfill mm. your basic needs. Um, so yeah. I, I would say that one of the key differences, if we apply this same sort of thinking to systems that govern our culturally responsive feedback mechanisms like protocols mm. and stuff like that within Indigenous mm. community contexts, um, in the case of, of probably um, non-Indigenous cultures, there seems to be an overemphasis on self-referencing feedback cycles, uh, I suppose, which can be referred to as those narcissistic tendencies um, that you highlight, uh, which are primarily governed by a positive feedback loop rather than a negative one. So there's that increase um, of selfness uh, within uh, a world where, where selfness doesn't get you very far. Um, mm. So if we, you look at the state of the world and you, you look at uh, where a lot of these um, sorts of things are happening, where, where it's competition over collaboration or cooperation, yeah. um, nature doesn't model itself on competition as much as it, anywhere near as much as it models itself on collaboration and cooperation. Um, so you're operating outside of the feedback loop within that context, but also, um, I don't know, uh, looking at like say um, maybe the top top one percent of, of billionaires or of wealthy um, elites in the world um, there wouldn't be too many people who uh, raise their kids to, to squander their trust um, but instead they like I'll, I'll make they if he had kids he wouldn't have raised them um, to to undo all of the work that he did um, to try and um, promote his product and and that, mm. indust that industry and his leadership within that industry, um, I'm, I'm certain that he wouldn't raise his kids to, to do that. But there was always this focus, whether he did or he didn't, um, there's always this focus on, on um, increased wealth and uh, the accruement of, of uh, economic resourcing and, uh, and status and, and profile. Um, so as you know, um, if we did this, we, we would fall almost immediately out of relationship with the, the people around us, the land, uh, and there are many processes and protocols, as you mentioned, that inform how we position ourselves in that type of context. Um, if, we're, if we're producing knowledge, if we're telling story and sharing ideas, um, there's, there's strict regulatory mechanisms around that, um, <clears throat> similar to the, that notion of homeostasis. Um, mentioned a, a, um, as an input, uh, is it in relation to B, um, if we say that A in relation to B to achieve C, um, C of course being sort of balance and equilibrium and maintaining cultural efficiency uh, and mm. evolving in cooperation with um, the things around us, whether that's people, mm. whether that's place, whether that's ecologies, whether that's um, different species, both human and non-human um, entities. Um, so within our cultural context, I think it's safe to say that that's why that um, those mechanisms are important because they inform they're informed by negative feedback loops rather than positive yeah. ones and it keeps us uh, living sustainably within relational context rather than economic context and we that mm. story that you just shared is a, is a good example of 
what happens when you live in accordance with the positive feedback loop combined or inserted within an economic context. Very sad. Mm. My mate, um, but uh, Victor, Victor Briggs, is, he's a good fella. I know, Victor. He, he, uh, well, he, he calls, you might have heard him say this before, but he refers to lateral violence as a, as a regulatory feedback loop. Hmm. He, he actually calls it, he calls it uh, lateral love. Ah. <laughs> so, you know, when a fella's getting too flat or, <laughs> you know, like uh, individually does something that brings success, you know, in, in the broader economy, all the mob, uh, you know, is down. He's not black. He's too free flash. He's thinking, I hate that property, you know, and they're going to bring him down. Um, mm. Yeah, and well, Vic calls that lateral love. <laughs> yeah, because it's uh, it's regulatory. Yeah, I think I did that with my clothes. I always had a flash pair of shoes, but I always had gammon clothes up top. Um, but as long as any, you go to most black communities and. And you see kids always have the matter shoes. Don't matter if yeah. you've got no uniform. Don't matter if you've got no... no yeah, you've got a language word for them. Um, no one else does, but Kamala does. What do you call them? Dandui or something. Dandui. That's how much he's love your shoes. You have to because you're bendies. Too much bendies on your country. Oh, catheds too. Like get... we got... Yeah, you've got the catheds in um, really poly bush and all that kind of thing. You know, everywhere you go in your country. It's exciting. Like, yeah. yeah. I, I don't like, I don't like doing it. Like, uh, you know, when you go for you know, cultural business there, I don't like dancing on your country because you can't wear shoes when you do that. Yeah, it's like that, every that, time, oh, I finish getting one right to the bone, right to the bone through the heel. It's, um, it's, it's not much fun at all. Yeah, they go through your shoes too. But that story that I shared about that lagoon there, you go to the lagoon and, and we do, we still do ceremony there and we, we always dance up. When we go back home, um, yeah, yeah, and there's glass all over the ground there. You gotta, you gotta not only navigate the bindi eyes or the catheads, but there's glass like all smashed there from from white people basically not respecting the site and it's uh, and it's um, sacredity, blatant disrespect, and and so there's water that's banned, water skiing and jet skiing, and that is all banned there and. Uh, we've had instances lately over the last couple of years of people just going out there and and going around. Um, but when the story tells you that, that you disrupt that waterway, um, you disrupt that area, then Garia will come back. Garia. Yeah. Well, there's lots of big um, megafauna, like old megafauna story all around there, eh? Mm. Yeah, and I think that um, sort of... Links up to all the stinker bones and everything there, the, those really big stories. You know, comes back to scale as well. You know, and that uh, the climate changed was a different scale. You know, required uh, for everything. You know, um, in terms of the size. You know, so there was uh, there were different limits to scale all of a sudden. You know, in the in the evolutionary context, everywhere. So those um, all those megafauna had to go. So we got a lot of our old stories is that. Um, you know, fellas hunting the like you know giant dingo, giant codfish, you know all them ones. Bandar dinner one, or they 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 um yeah they gotta hunt them down and and kill them and, and cut them up to make them into many diverse species and smaller species. Um, yeah, because that's what the new landscape required. 
when it uh, cooled down and dried up a bit, eh? Hmm. Yeah. Well, that would be a more yeah. complex way of looking at it. A simpler way we'd be looking at it would be, you know, to decide whether you're on the side of, you know, Aborigines were beautiful environmentalists, wouldn't hurt a fly, or, you know, Aboriginal people were murderous savages who ate all the diprotodons. Did more ecological damage on this continent than white people ever did. And you've got to choose one of those sides, defend it to the death. Mm. And then, um, you know, wait for the smoking gun of a diprotodon bone with a, with a stone axe mark in it. <laughs> and you can say, there, look, I've won. Mm. Yeah. And, and that's what I was going to say. The, that's that the winner loser uh, effect sort of coming in, the game theory element yeah. there where if if aboriginal people were harmonious and lived in um, perpetual sustainability and and considerate deep consideration of all things on the landscape which um which from my perspective is what happened um but i, I don't say that in a way that yes we won we won um and then the, yeah. the continual research that that sort of comes out in that vague area of did they or didn't they hunt these massive creatures to extinction i think they did um, and then that's the yes, we won, we destroyed them. Um, mm. where, when that there's nothing productive in that, and it it does go back to that simplification of the feedback mechanism. Yep, A happened. That's the input. Um, therefore, B is the result of that input. Uh, and now we understand. Mm. Now we mm. understand. We, we've got the truth, and we we know this full story. When there's a whole, what's in the alphabet? There's no there's no A A. Uh, there's no sort of letter between A and B. Um, yeah. No, but there's the whole mean... rest of the alphabet to consider. Mm, All the yeah, other yeah. possibilities of, you know, um, of, of people as a custodial species, you know, managing the environment. And if there's some megafauna that's that's hanging on beyond its time, um, you know, into an age and an, a, a, an evolutionary fitness landscape, you know, in which they're, they're doing damage, uh, to systems that, you know, will end up destroying them. Um, you know, so, you know, after that change, then, then people are going to have to manage, manage the numbers down, um, you know, to, um, you know, moving, moving that species on. Um, hmm. yeah. And, um, and, and then settling down all the ecological niches and diverse niches that are going to be needed for that, uh, transition into the next era without like, you know, complete mass extinction of everything. Um, and start again from scratch because <laughs> uh, that's terrible yeah and i think mm. that's why we need to be more cautious of those those feedback mechanisms as as a human yeah. species and as a as a custodial species as you say um it is so that we're monitoring and we're aware of of what's happening uh to the earth the same way that we would with our body if we if we're choking yeah. on rice <laughs> Or choking yeah. on ribs, and and we have to yeah. be mindful of what message that's, that's sending it. to us, so we can be more responsive to that system when yeah. it needs us to be. But look, if, if diprotodons were a food source, then you know, um, and, and that was the main. <laughs> thing. I mean, then they would have been managed better, and, and that, that kind of made them extinct. If they were a food source that people, you know, really wanted to keep in the system, then they'd have been kept. You know, you don't find the same logic applied to to the tundra or anything like you, you don't have oh my god look there's these mammoth bones there's evidence that that uh, europeans used to hunt mammoths 
that must be the reason why the mammoths went extinct. It's like, no, nah, bros, everyone knows that was a climate change event <laughs> for the extinction of the mammoths. The thing was, though, that um, that, that was such a young landscape, it was such a, a young ecosystem that it had these uh, these megafauna that were taking up, you know, multiple ecological niches, you know, with um, apex predators and apex bloody herbivores, if there's such a thing, you know, and uh, really minimal biodiversity that you find still in Europe today, you know, um, because it was a young landscape, it sort of never got the chance to, um, to develop into something more complex or to have people, um, you know, be custodians of it in that way to bring it back into that, it's, you know, it's uh, full potential. Maybe that's what development looks like, right? Yeah, well, I, I go back to that that story there again and, and say, well, was the element of chaos um, and disequilibrium in that in that to ensure that creation is still moving and and things are still evolving and still uh, things are still um, given the chance to emerge um, and mm. and everything uh, then has the responsibility to adapt to those ever-changing processes and creation and and that's what mm. humans have done for forever pretty much so yeah yeah just got to find fostering, a way to... fostering the conditions for emergence that's uh you've used that word again emergence and for me that's um no matter how many different definitions you have of complexity science uh, i think it always has to have emergence in it as mm. a fundamental principle because um, i think that's what it's all about i've actually even heard i've heard of the community of complexity scholars and sisters think it's referred to as the um emergentia Oh, yeah. Instead of intelligentsia, the emergentsia, which is pretty cool. <laughs> uh, oh, that tells me that there's some kind of reverence being restored there for a process that has always been highly sacred and significant. So that's a good yeah. thing. Yeah. Well, our lab, the, the, when we were first tossing around names for the lab, um, um, the first title we were sitting on for a while, quite fond of was the the re-emergence lab so this mm -hmm. idea of re-emergence uh, rather than just emergence mm -hmm. um yeah because it's it's retrieving forward um you know the knowledges that did foster emergence before mm -hmm. rather than this idea that you know, it's just being invented now yeah and this idea of humans reclaiming the ancestral birthright of um of, of complex thinking and, and land-based uh, science uh, and governance systems and economies and all the rest yeah well anyway i think we're um we're, we're tweaking the edges of our, of our time idea for us anything else you want to chuck in before we head off uh no i don't think so i think that's uh, that's a good starting point um and uh some good uh, I guess good uh, considerations in there just around how we are positioning ourselves within those greater sort of systems and, and ecologies, both uh, emergent um, and submergent and also remergent. Um, so just because that, that name didn't carry over, I don't think it's it's worth letting go of. Um, and I think That's it's still a principle. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and the, the combination of all those principles um, and how we sort of, <clears throat> um, locate ourselves back in our mm. uh, natural um, 
feedback loops and mechanisms uh, in relation to nature and the greater systems that we're a part of. Mm. Um, I think it, uh, first principles 1.0, first, first principles. Mm. Mm. <clears throat> yeah, no, that's, that's, I think it's all, all really important. And I think uh, the work that we continue to do in that space, that'll um, no doubt have some, some good um, impacts uh, over time. Um, if it hasn't already, I think it has. Sweet, Russ. Well, goodbye in Gamilaroi ears. Uh, we, don't miss, we don't say goodbye. Um, there's not really That's a word right. for goodbye. goodbye. <laughs> um, there's a few different you ways. That the you yama. Mm. Uh, no, yama is yeah. not, even, not even a hello. It's more of an inquisitive. So it's, it's yama with a question mark, yeah. a little bit like, like which way. Is, like, is which way? Always yeah, yeah. It's yeah, uh, it's an inquisitive. Yeah. So then, good goodbye is more. Uh, I don't know. Some people say yalu uh, or yalu, uh, which sort yeah. of means again, again, and that has sort of mm. philosophical context. So some people say bayendo. Um, some people say ngamila uh, uh, or ngamilanga. Um, so all of those can yeah. basically mean. I see a lot. A lot of you sign off their emails with those ones. Mm, yeah. So it's basically, I'll, I'll see you again at some point and look forward to that time. Mm -hmm. Well, I must have get Yalu. Yalu. Yeah. <laughs> All right, brothers. Um, yeah. yeah, that was a good yarn. I'll catch up on Friday for the, the big thing tank. Yeah, no, it sounds good. All right, bro. Catch up. Yep. <laughs>